Today is April the 13th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E, prn.live. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival, also known as TCF 2022, was held Saturday, March 19th. It was a free virtual online event on tcf-nj.org. The theme of the festival was Using Technology to Disrupt Environmental Change. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. And if you miss some of the talks because they were concurrent, all the sessions were recorded. They are now available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page has hyperlinks that will direct you to the portal site. Google jumps into the iFixit repair kits for Pixel phones. Apple and Samsung recently announced Right to Repair, and this makes it possible for you to have access to parts, tools, and documentation so you can do your own repairs. Not to be outdone, Google jumps on the bandwagon with iFixit repair kits for Pixel phones. Google has announced it's teaming up with iFixit to offer Fixit kits for the Pixel smartphone. Google is joining Samsung in offering parts for the Pixel smartphone through iFixit. The company announced in it would make parts available for the Pixel 2 through the Pixel 6 Pro later this year. Considering Google has stopped supporting the devices with software updates, the inclusion of the early second-gen hardware is pretty impressive. Future Pixel models will also have repairable parts. The program is available for people living in the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, and European Union countries where the Pixel is available. Google plans to offer Fixit kits for the battery, display, and camera modules. Google may have more repairability down the line. Some of the simpler parts of the smartphone will become swappable, like the Bluetooth antenna or the USB-C charging port, which Samsung is offering a fix for in its respective kits. The Pixel kits will also include tools like screwdriver bits and smudgers, which are things you might not have in your home if you're not already a nerdy tinkerer. Google, however, still encourages you to find a local authorized professional who can quickly and affordably repair your device. The company has partnered with U-Break iFix in the United States and Canada, while other regions have their respective repair centers. 
Foreign companies, what is their cost of doing business in China? There is a genuine problem with China mercantilism. China's government steals the intellectual property of foreign companies or forces them to turn it over. China has been violating intellectual property and forcing technology transfer if you want to do business in China. ARM, UK's primary business, is the design of ARM processors. ARM has been entrenched in a legal battle with its China division since 2020. When the company attempted to fire then and still current leader of the joint venture, well, they had a problem. Under the cover of China's legislation, the CEO of ARM China has managed to remain in control of the rogue unit whose activities have already come under investigation regarding suspicious payments to its senior executives. The executive has also kept the company's seal, which is required under Chinese law to authorize official documents. ARM UK isn't happy with the state of affairs. SoftBank, who is the owner of ARM UK, isn't either. Regulators have not been able to access ARM China's financials. ARM UK has transferred its stake in its rogue ARM China joint venture to an independent entity, enabling it to continue collecting licensing fees from Chinese companies, but without requiring ARM China to open its books. However, the dispute between ARM UK and ARM China may not be over. ARM UK had transferred its stake in ARM China to a new entity for accounting reasons. Thus, ARM UK can now deem its stake in ARM China as an investment rather than a joint venture. As a result, ARM China will continue to distribute ARM's IP in China, and ARM UK will continue to collect licensing fees from Chinese companies. However, ARM China will not have to disclose its financial results to regulators or to UK investors. Transferring shares to a special purpose vehicle could be a well-thought-out option that SoftBank is using to deal with the standoff between ARM UK and its China joint venture. ARM China accounts for about a quarter of ARM UK's revenue, but ARM China is not a fully-owned subsidiary of a parent company, but is now a joint venture between ARM UK, which is currently controlled by SoftBank, and a consortium of China-based investment funds. ARM UK owns 47.33% stake in ARM China, whereas the remaining stake was controlled by various Chinese entities. Since Alan Wu, who is the CEO of ARM China, doesn't share ARM China's financial results with ARM UK, ARM UK cannot fire Wu because he holds the company seal. Now that ARM Limited, which is ARM UK, does not directly hold a stake in ARM China, its accounting problems look to be solved. But there may be another problem. It's unclear whether the transfer was approved by the current ARM China CEO, who continues to hold the ARM China seal. Technically, ARM Limited is a UK-based company, so it should be able to transfer its assets however it wants. But Chinese laws may say otherwise. There is a substantial difference in the role of government in Chinese businesses compared to Western countries. China has a planned economy closely tied to the government. In China, more than 76% of assets are owned by the government, with the people owning less than a quarter, while in the United States, assets are owned privately. 
This means that to do business in China, a company will most likely have to negotiate with the state. The bureaucracy involved in negotiating with the state can slow down the pace of business ventures. Joint ventures are difficult to establish because they have substantial government involvement. Legal matters lack consistency and can be changed at the will of the Chinese government. However, the Chinese government has tried in recent years to upgrade legal protections, making the business environment more enticing to foreigners. This was recently reported. Apple's CEO Tim Cook secretly signed an agreement worth more than $275 billion with Chinese officials, promising that Apple would help to develop China's economy and technological capabilities. Let's just say that's the cost of doing business in China, but it has its risk. Adding to Russia's military aggression against Ukraine, they've also been cyber-attacking Ukraine. But Microsoft has countered Russia's cyber attacks by seizing the Russian domains. Microsoft has seized domains used by a hacking group linked to Russia's GRU, G-R-U. Russia's military intelligence service is commonly known by the Russian acronym GRU, which stands for the Main Intelligence Directorate. Seven internet domains used by Strontium, a Russian state-sponsored hacking group, were seized by Microsoft last week. This has been part of a years-long investigation into the Russian hacker group, which has allegedly been conducting a series of cyber attacks on Ukraine since the Russian-led invasion started nearly two months ago. Strontium has ties to Russia's military intelligence unit, GRU, and has also gone by the names APT-28 and Fancy Beer. The group is reportedly responsible for massive cyber attacks such as the infamous DNC hack in 2016 and malware attacks on numerous businesses worldwide. In a blog post, Microsoft broke down how and when the company made its move against the hacker group. They said the following, On Wednesday, April the 6th, we obtained a court order authorizing us to take control of seven internet domains Strontium was using to conduct these attacks. We have since redirected these domains to a sinkhole controlled by Microsoft, enabling us to mitigate Strontium's current use of these domains and enable victims' notifications. The domains in question were being used to target Ukrainian government institutions and media organizations. Microsoft suspected that Strontium was trying to establish long-term access to the systems of its targets, provide tactical support for the physical invasion, and exfiltrate sensitive information. According to Microsoft, it wasn't just Ukraine the hackers were targeting. They also were targeting the United States and European government institutions related to foreign policy. Microsoft has been investigating Strontium since 2016 and has taken legal action at least 15 times and has taken control of more than 100 strontium-controlled domains. During the Russian invasion, Ukrainian IT and tech workers have banded together online to counterattack the cyber attackers by launching attacks on Russian digital infrastructure in the ongoing cyber warfare. Microsoft additionally said the strontium attacks are just a small part of the activity we have seen in Ukraine. Before the Russian invasion, 
our teams began working around the clock to help organizations in Ukraine, including government agencies, defend against an onslaught of cyber warfare that has escalated since the invasion began as continue relentlessly. Thumbs up for the work that Microsoft is doing. Up to 18-month delay for semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Wow. Delays may filter down to consumer hardware. As to the current and future supply of electronics, chip makers attempting to expand their production capacity are being met with increasingly long lead times, some reaching the 18-month mark. This is likely to put a dent on the speed at which new semiconductor factories from the likes of Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor enter production, which could in turn translate into longer-than-previously-thought supply constraints for consumer-facing electronics. While the industry itself is still reeling from the COVID-19 pandemic and the supply constraints rising from the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the tech industry's growth continues at an astonishing pace. As more and more appliances receive the smart treatment, the requirements for the prime materials increase lockstep with the increasing amounts and complexity of electronics. Supply issues within the semiconductor industry have impacted pricing and availability of some of the hardware components we know and love. Several multi-billion dollar investments in fabrication capacity have already been announced, aiming to not only alleviate the problem, but also ensure sustainable growth for the industry in coming years. The problem is that capacity expansions require enormous amounts of semiconductors themselves, which means that scaling production in the future means constraining today's supply. Another issue is a lack of enough professionals in the space, which has led to increased poaching and even prompted Intel to create a multi-billion dollar fund designed to attract and retain tech talent. Taiwan Semiconductor Plan Arizona Factory is already facing construction delays due to a lack of construction workers. Leading chip tube makers such as ASML, Applied Materials, and others have already warned clients that wait time for new orders are now averaging at around 18 months. As such, it sounds plausible that Intel's $80 billion Silicon Junction initiative for semiconductor manufacturing in Europe, too, will be facing delays. ASML had already warned that its own supplies were having difficulties in ramping up production, with the company facing shortages in everything from lens, valves and pumps to microcontrollers, engineering plastics, and electronic modules. This has also hit substrates, a required element for chips going into printed circuit boards. Lead time for substrates have increased from 2021's already extended 12 to 18 months lead time up to 30 months. The delays and increased lead times will make it difficult for smaller businesses and startups to scale up their electronics designs, which could delay the introduction of consumer-oriented goods or induce further shortages. Beyond that, we've already seen the issues caused by supply constraints, with the delay of cheaper, lower-margin electronics and AMD took more than a year to scale its Zen 3 designs down to sub-$300 prices, with Ryzen 3 and Ryzen 5 lineups being comparatively barren 
to the company's first debut of the Zen microarchitecture. The same was true for mid-range and entry-level discrete GPU offerings, all while users grapple with stratospheric prices motivated by cryptocurrency mining demand and scalpers' unethical behavior in taking advantage of the situation. While companies such as ASML, Intel, and Taiwan Semiconductor have the clout to essentially pay whatever is required, well, of course, up to a certain point, in a constrained market, the same isn't true for the smaller players in the semiconductor supply chain. These are faced with a hard decision. They can invest in scaling their production to address the current and near-future supply constraints, but they could then be faced with too much capacity when the supply-demand equation finally regains balance. That is at least one of the reasons why smaller players are being much more cautious in increasing capacity. Perhaps the industry must face the uncomfortable possibility of these increased lead times actually becoming the new norm. Companies should be wary of already slowing demand for electronics and its impact on the semiconductor supply chain. Constrained supply means that companies will have to prioritize some products over others, and no sane company would prioritize lower margin products such as entry or mid-range CPUs, GPUs, or others when they can instead focus production on higher margin products such as server, data center, and supercomputer contracts, of which there are numerous projects currently in the works. You know, many of us were quite shocked in the beginning of February when we saw our utility bill for the prior month of January. For some of us, it was double and even triple what we were paying. Well, you got to look around for how we can cut down on the cost for electricity and gas. And one of the things that came to mind was, does unplugging appliances really save electricity and money? Your appliances still draw power even when they aren't in use. Unplugging appliances when not in use can save both electricity and money. The idea is that appliances can still be running certain functions in the background while still plugged in. So unplugging them stops the silent energy drain. This is especially true with instant-on television sets. But how much money does unplugging appliances actually save? Do you save a significant amount of energy by unplugging appliances? Is it worth it to constantly be plugging and unplugging appliances? Well, it all depends on how much convenience you want and at what cost. So why does unplugging appliances save money? It seems counterintuitive to unplug appliances. After all, they're off, aren't they? So why would they be sucking energy? The fact is, your appliances actually still use energy even when they are turned off but still plugged in, according to energy.gov. When the devices switch off or in standby mode. Well, here are some examples. A device that may still use energy in the form of permanently on lights or other displays showing that the device is off. Well, you're really still plugged in. Computers that were simply put into sleep mode. Charges that still draw power even if the device is not connected. Media players that continually draw power, especially ones that might still scan for updates in the background. 
Phones with displays that show when not in active use, like cordless phones. New smart home appliances like refrigerators, washers, and dryers that have always-on displays. And obviously, internet connectivity and electronic controls. The energy that gets used from these devices while not in active use is often called standby power, but also goes by other names like phantom load, shadow loads, idle current, or even vampire power. Electricity and money savings can be made from controlling standby power. Many people are shocked to realize how much standby power can add up to. Standby power accounts for 5-10% to of residential energy use, according to energy.gov. Unplugging devices could save the average household up to $100 a year. However, how much you save could depend on how many devices you use and your habits with them. For instance, an educational experiment from Colorado State University found that a combo radio CD player tape player used 4 watts continually whether it was in use or not. Unplugging it when not in use would save 100 times as much power during the lifetime of the device. A study out of the Natural Resources Defense Council, that's the NRDC, found that just reducing the load from always-on devices would save consumers a total of $8 billion annually and avoid using 64 billion kilowatt hours of electricity per year. It also has environmental benefits, like preventing 44 million metric tons of carbon dioxide pollution. The NRDC estimated the cost of always-on devices at up to $165 per household per year on average. And as you know, these average numbers is across the United States, and if you live on the East Coast, like in New York City, it's much higher than the average. Well, how do you control standby power? The first step is, of course, to unplug anything that's not actively in use or not used often. One example of devices that could easily be unplugged include TVs and set-top boxes and guest rooms. It's also generally easy to unplug media players when not in use, like a radio or CD player. When you take the device off its charger, it can also help to get into the habit of unplugging that charger as well. You might also be surprised how many devices we have plugged in that we don't even use anymore. Examples could include old wireless phones, old media plays, or lamps that are more decorative than functional. However, unplugging and replugging in everything can get very tedious, especially if your outlets are in hard-to-reach places. If the habit is too inaccessible, it will be hard to keep up. So you can also set up ways to make the process of cutting phantom load more automatic. You can plug devices into power strip. That way, one flick of the power switch button can turn off multiple devices. You can also get timers to plug devices into or smart outlets so that you can automate when the power is connected to a device. For instance, you might set the time for a TV's power so it's only connected during peak use times like evenings or weekends. You could also look into getting Energy Star products. Many of these products are rated to have lower standby power use than products that are not rated by Energy Star. There are more resources for saving electricity. As power bills get higher and more erratic over time, 
it's more vital than ever to find ways to save on electric cost. Another key way to affect your electric heating bill for the better is to know the ideal temperature you should set for your home. You can also save on your gas and electric bill, like turning down your water heater or changing your air filters. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. How does a manager review a remote worker? This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about, well, the world we live in and we and how it interacts with the office environment, the business environment, and there's so much here. A frequent question that I've been getting lately, uh, and this is this is in part because we're now at you know, two years into this pandemic, and that is how does a manager do a performance review of a remote worker? Now, I'm going to give this to you in two different directions. I'm going to give you kind of from the managerial perspective, but also from the employee, the worker perspective. So let's start off. Well, one of the first things for doing performance reviews is going to be engagement. Not now, not during the review, but through the year. Cautionary note though, don't be a micromanager. Don't use this as an excuse to be nosy, pushy, a bean counter, or any of this. It is easy to, to let this get away from you. It's easy to get too embroiled in all of the different nuanced items that are coming along to get into the nitty-gritty of every single problem that's going on in the world. Don't do it. Being a micromanager takes more time out of your day and is less productive than letting your employees do what they need to do. So give this space and remember that the work from home situation is different than the working in the office. Somebody who's working from home is going to have these interruptions and they are going to naturally feel guilty about these interruptions and actually make up for them. I've seen this time and time again. Now, I don't have as many interruptions for myself because, uh, yeah, we don't have kids in the house. We don't have a whole lot going on. So it's a little bit different. But I do see this in other households. And we, we've all heard about, you know, the kids are on the Zoom call or whatever it is. So don't worry about that. But reaching out regularly, determining that the person is tracking the work, getting it done, being responsive and responsible are good. And understand a little bit of what they're working on. Don't don't dive in too deep. Just make sure that they're getting things done that need to be done. If they're not, you also might want to communicate to them what your expectations are. Say, hey, you know, can we get this done by Friday? Can we get this done by the end of the month? Can we get this done by the end of the quarter? And track those items and understand that, yeah, you may also put too much work on someone. So ask them regularly what's going on. Not micromanaging. Don't don't get on their case. This is another problem that managers sometimes have. You get on their case and you go in and you you say, well, you didn't get this done and that is my most important thing. No, there's other work they're probably doing. Now for the worker, 
customer comments are going to be really key here. And don't be shy. Ask for people to share the positive experiences with your boss. Make sure that other people are reporting, hey, you know, Johnny over here, he's doing a great job. Uh, I, you know, he helped me out with this problem. He, he did this. It, this is really great. You, you really need to be good about it. But, you know, and whatever it is. The next item for performance review of a remote worker is this statistical analysis. And you're going to compare the worker to the others. You're going to develop metrics that show a value to the team, the company, the bottom line, the the overall values of the company, whatever it is. And you're going to develop these. Some of these are going to be simple. It's going to be, you know, translating this to the shop floor. How many widgets did they put out? Now, make sure you know what the best metrics are for your company. And make sure that you are measuring things that are good to be measured. And make sure that you're not getting into really obnoxious areas. And remember that you, that, Certain things are not always the end-all, be-all. Yes, this employee over here, Jack, may be doing a great job with every individual customer. Now, he doesn't close as many tickets, but he does a better job at keeping the customer happy. And that's an intangible that you can't always get. So you've got to work through these. Now, for the worker, find out what these items are. Find out what the metrics are and play to these numbers. It's a gamification of the work environment. So now if you're being reviewed, again, if you're the worker, and you don't know what the metrics are, you've got two choices. Ask or come up with your own. And what do I mean by this? Track meaningful data and explain how your data shows that you're not subpar, that you're not mediocre. Come up with how many widgets did you put out and you know what is your success rate uh, versus failure rate on those? So I have a metric, a couple of metrics that I've come up with, and they show that I have a much higher volume and a much higher success rate and a much higher uh, satisfaction rate. And I can present these. This, this is to my boss. And I can say, look at these, th- these three areas, and I shine, and that puts me up higher. Now, to the manager's. We're at a point where the idea of returning to the office is loathsome to the workers. And you can't know what the remote worker is thinking. So be very careful. Use caution before you start beating up on one of these employees, before you micromanage them, before you start twisting things around. Be very careful. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Video games are booming among older people, 50 and older. In just three years, the number of older adults who play video games frequently has grown from 40.2 million gamers in 2016 to 50.6 million gamers in 2019. You know, that works out to one in every seven person in the United States. Over one-third constantly try new games. With increased access and use, Older adults are using gaming to connect socially, stay mentally sharp, reduce stress, and just to have fun. Continued growth in the number of older gamers means increased spending power, 
particularly on content. From an AARP report, the study found a big difference in games in game play by gender. The survey found that 49% of women age 50 and older were gamers, while just 40% of men were gamers. Women are playing video games more often too, with 53% of them saying they play video games every day, while just 39% of men said the same in the 2019 survey. Most popular among 50-plus gamers, puzzle and logic games, 50%, card and tile games, 48%, and trivia, word, and traditional board video games, 24%. Only 7% are drawn to action or shooter games, and 6% to racing or sports games. Non-tech gamers are most likely to enjoy crosswords, Sudoku, Solitaire, board games, and card and tile games. Video game sales statistics show that gaming industry revenue dwarfs all other entertainment industries combined. For instance, the global movie box office revenue in 2018 amounted to $41.7 billion, while the gaming market generated $151.2 billion. The video game industry is constantly evolving and inspiring innovation, from simple one-time purchases and single-play experiences to full-price and free-to-play games. The gaming industry has been completely reshaped throughout the last decade. Results of a March 2016 study indicated that about 60% of adults age over 50 play games online, out of which 57% were female players. While the majority of senior gamers came from the 50 to 59 age group, accounting for 43%, a quarter of senior gamers in the United States were 70 years or older. According to the report, gamers 50 and older spent an estimated $3.5 billion on gaming within a six-month time frame from January to June 2019, up from $523 million in 2016. Continued growth in the number of older gamers means increased spending power, particularly on content. Many senior retirees play online games to keep both the mind and hand-eye coordination sharp. They find it's like comfort food. Obviously, it's probably inevitable that younger generations who have grown up with video games will wheel a cart full of controllers and game systems into retirement homes. But boomers are becoming more and more aware of the mental and increasingly communal benefits of video games, especially story games, can be just as engaging and emotional as a TV or a movie. It's a great way to spend time and it's fundamentally good to challenge your brain with puzzles and hand-eye difficulties. People, especially males, need hero stories and the means to strive to be that hero. Games are a safe place to achieve those needs. But, as always, we should try to limit it to just so it won't get out of hand. There are people who will sit and watch eight hours of television, but then say playing video games is a waste of time. Games, especially story games, can be just as engaging and emotional as a TV show or movie. They let you explore worlds and fantasize. Loneliness is a growing issue with seniors, but gaming 
Grandpas and grandmas are able to find community in their favorite video games, whether that's literally in video games or simply have something in common with the younger generations. Some play Minecraft with their nieces and nephews and grandchildren on a closed world. Lots of people say it's a kid's game, but it can be much more fun than watching television. The depth of character development in modern games is astonishing. Some who have had to be hospitalized for injuries and other health issues bring with them their gaming rig. One can get bored quickly, as everyone knows, in a hospital environment, and the games really help pass the time away. Gaming helps even more so in a retirement or nursing home. There's a myth that grandpa and grandma can't use computers because they aren't digital literate. Well, that's the generation, just remember now, that invented the internet and all the technology to go along with it. So for seniors who have been using computers for years, gaming provides a wonderful way to structure their time and to have fun. Gaming has been nothing less than a great boon to seniors. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. And they'll be talking about Zebra Printer Changing Game. And they might talk about Easter Sunday that's coming up this weekend. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, one of the things that um, that really is an industry which is having to adapt, is having to change, is the printing industry. Well, printing is a loose term, isn't it? I mean, if I have a magic marker on a piece of cardboard, I could be printing. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> you have a printer in your office. Yeah, you probably do. Probably a laser or, or an inkjet, and you're doing whole pages, and you try not to do them terribly often. Mm -hmm, but yeah. sometimes they don't make the PDF editable, and you just have to do that. Yeah. But the real place that is always the last bastion to force you to use ways to put things on paper that go on boxes or envelopes is shipping. For years, IBM Selectrics were long gone from every office except for where they had to type labels. Yes. I, yeah, I remember I worked at a furniture manufacturer. And we had, when I arrived, we had probably a dozen the, it, the we slowly got rid of those over the course of five years. So this is one of my Whoa. early jobs. This is this is in the nineties. Uh, when I left, we had one, and it was out on the loading docks. <laughs> well, that's where you need it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's where you put it. And uh, there have been a lot of solutions. Uh, some of the paper manufacturers came up with sticky labels on sheets. Yeah, and yeah. and they would give you templates you could put into Word, and you fill it in Word. You print that sheet as many times. Sure. I I can't tell you how many social clubs and organizations and political activists and all of that kept using those until very recently. Yeah. And then then you had people who made dedicated label printers. They'd plug in and and you know you'd, you'd run some kind of merge and and labels would come out and you'd stick them on things file folders or or your kids' clothes or or we, you and I I think have used them to label cables in, in in rack rooms. Oh, all the time, yes. Now and and some of those things handheld, some of them are desktop. I got in a label printer mm -hmm. that I find uh, is really really 
raising the bar a little bit. This is from Zebra, Z-E-B-R-A. Yes, yes, uh, Zebra Technologies. I, I, I had one uh, at a recent company I worked for, and that's what we used for printing out uh, ID badges. So the right. permanent, uh, you know, looked like a credit card, but uh, it had the RFID so people could get in and out of the building and stuff like that. Put, put your picture <laughs> oh. on it. And yeah, yeah, nice stuff. Oh, my. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't uh, counter. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> this particular one, I'll read the model number off, is the ZSB DP14. I've got a couple of reasons I'm impressed by it, not the least of which is that it is about the size you might expect a tissue box to be or yeah, a napkin. Yeah, yeah. It plugs in through a wall wart, so whatever everybody does. And in the top, you push – Oh, I, I, I'm going to show this to you so you can comment on it when we're not together. All right. You push a bar. Okay. It releases the top. The yeah. top swings up. It's hard to do while I'm talking with two hands. Yes. The top swings up. There is a drop-in cartridge with the labels oh, in it. Oh, nice. And it's cardboard or fiberboard or, or sh that shaped stuff that isn't plastic. Right, right. Thank you for sparing the plastic. The planet appreciates that. They so, sent. So that says. This. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> so that says XL shipping on it. So I presume yes. that's extra large shipping labels. They sent me a variety, a, a separate box with just different label shapes and sizes in it. Mm -hmm. okay. Little two by twos, one and a half, two and a half inches wide. Uh, the kind that you might put on envelopes, the kind you might used to tag drawers or, 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 or put on file folders, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, printing with something that forms fonts is so much more legible than what you and I do when we're trying to do <laughs> the you, Sharpie. To the you don't want to see my Sharpie <laughs> skills. It's horrible. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, second bit of love here, drop in nothing to thread, no waste. When I'm done with this one, I, take it out, put it aside, put the next one in that I'm using, and it doesn't care. I haven't lost half a label. I'm not right, threading right. an extra half a label, with, like always happen with those big reels. And it doesn't have that huge caboose that you've seen. Have, have, have you seen those? They're the size of an old... Anybody who's ever worked in a theater with film, 35-millimeter <laughs> movies came on big reels. They were about yeah, two yeah, inches yeah. thick and yeah. about, what, 10, 12 inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. And I've seen I've seen labels on those things. And it just, <laughs> if you ever want your desk back, you've got to put a hole in the wall. I mean, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, Zebra went the extra mile on support. You want to run it from Windows? You want to run it from Mac? You want to run it from your iPhone? You want to run it under Android? All nice. of that. Okay, so so I'm presuming it's wireless. It's, it, it's, well, it, yes, it is wireless. The okay. only wire to it is the power connection. Well, okay, so not even an Ethernet. I love that. Uh, no USB on it. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and uh, look, you if you're working mm -hmm. out in the field, and you just find power and nothing else, and your phone or your 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 notebook, you can. Do your printer labels right there. Sometimes you might even find a free outlet at the FedEx or UPS store. Sure. Or, or yeah. Or if you're a road warrior, you're working out of your car, truck or whatever. It's just a matter of providing power. And that's easy through a 12 volt to 120 volt adapter. 
Yeah, it's a forty dollar oh. inverter cover. It so sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 loving I'm loving. Yes, I'm I am. <laughs> I love that that they're upping their ante on what printers can do and how handy they are. I think it's what the next gen needs to follow. And it's not striped like you'd expect a zebra. Oh, now wait a minute, like, Ben. Is this your Easter show? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, I'm I'm happy to talk about Easter. You know, Easter eggs, wonderful, but. I want to offer equal time to the devil. Oh, dear. So I would have to paint his head to make it look like an Easter egg. I, yeah, I, I could. Charlie <laughs> <laughs> Brown shirt stripes all the way around. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm bald by choice. Well, okay, also bald by not choice at this point. But, hey. Uh, I'm, I'm in that transition phase. <laughs> He's been scalped because the years have their hatchets. Yeah. There's that joke from doing that. Doing that line again. He's been scalped because the years have their tomahawks. <laughs> Wait, you did that joke. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, you were. Uh, what about uh, uh, eight weeks ago? Seven, six, somewhere no, there. No, no, it was before when when it was just us and you weren't recording, and I oh, was wow. mentioning hearing it on Perry Mason. Because, oh, okay, right, right, all right. We were talking about movies and games and operating systems. Oh yeah, systems oh yeah, yeah, and things that have what Easter eggs, which of course is very timely here for today. Yeah, yeah, and and look, Easter eggs. Are a lot of fun. Even if you don't want the egg, Easter eggs are a lot of fun. But mm -hmm. I love hard-boiled eggs. Maybe I'm weird, <laughs> but I love hard-boiled eggs. I'm especially respectful of the other side. Equal time, deviled eggs. Oh, you want you take the yolk and a little bit of white, and you put some spices, and yeah, you whip yeah. that up, and you put it in the middle. And if you really, really, really want to go deluxe, and there's a restaurant here where I always order the appetizer because it is deviled eggs with candied bacon. Oh, oh, and man. Now, and now, and we've, now we've come full circle. To Easter ham. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, some of the Easter eggs in the tech world, though, are, I'm, I'm very fond of them. You know, one of the first ones I found uh, outside of the gaming world, in the professional oh, world. Do you remember? About Eliza. Uh, well, there were some in, in Eliza, too. But uh, my one of my favorite ones was the flight simulator in Microsoft Excel. I loved that. I'm like, they put a lot of time into this. This is fun. Yeah, they, you know, you know, you've you've got a lot of coders, and mm -hmm. they figure out they can do it, and they're already working thirty-hour days. So what's forty? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, they get the respect of their peers, and and uh, they brag about it later, and then they're on to the next grueling forty-hour day. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. That's just what what programming is like. And then, of course, none of the bosses are happy, so they got to go back again, so they get mad, and they sneak in yet another Easter egg. And yeah, I was working might, that day. Yes, I was. And that That's... one might be a little more deviled than, uh, the, than the first. <laughs> and when we say deviled in that context, some of those Easter eggs did get a little bit 
naughty. There, yeah, there were some that we probably shouldn't talk about on the show. Not on today. But, no, no, oh, no, no. no. Not today for but, it, no. Um, what, what are some of your favorite Easter eggs from the tech well, no, industry? No, no, let's, let's keep it current. My favorite Easter eggs are in the Marvel movies. Oh, you know, the Marvel oh yes. Oh, <laughs> every single one of them. Okay, the, the the easy Easter egg is, of course, where is Stan Lee going to show up at? <laughs> oh, and uh, even uh, he showed up even in that uh, that uh, animated Spider Man one. Uh, and I will tell you, even though it was so happy, it was so fun. Just that that one last Easter egg from him. I I will tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was so beautiful. And I I started reading Marvel comics as a teen, as a twelve. Sure, sure, yeah. And uh, Stan uh, and Jack Jack Kirby had some very pithy messages uh, to spare, both within the comics mm-hmm. and in their comments page within the comic book. For those of you who weren't around then to understand the difference, they were dealing with not just I'm a hero and you can't get me kind of stuff. Spider-Man had all kinds of angst. He was a teenager. He didn't feel worthy. He was riddled with guilt. The Fantastic Four had internal differences all the time, disagreements. You never saw that with Batman and Robin. No, no. (laughs) It just didn't happen. You had... The howling commandos. You 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 had Thor. You 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 had Iron Man. You had a whole bunch of guys, and with everyone, there is some little twist. Iron Man had a heart that could fail at any moment, and the magnet that powered his suit was also the only thing keeping that shrapnel out of his heart. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there there was a lot of edge of destruction kind of stuff, and that also is reminiscent of some of the themes of Easter. Mm-hmm. Easter's rebirth. Mm-hmm. How do you get past that? How do you get back out into the world? Now, if you're an Easter egg, forget it. You're cracking up. Oh, dear. Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, with jokes like that, I, I you always leave me shell-shocked. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes our segments aren't all that they're cracked up to be. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival, also known as TCF 2022, was held Saturday, March 19th. It was a free virtual online event on tcf-nj.org. The theme of the festival was Using Technology to Disrupt Environmental Change. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. And if you miss some of the talks because they were concurrent, all the sessions were recorded. They are now available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page has hyperlinks that will direct you to the portal site. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most club meetings are online, you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. 
Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, Audacity, Open Source Audio Editing App, Thursday. Meeting time is 7 p.m. on April the 14th. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, April the 28th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Topic of presentation is AI and our human future. It's a virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation, Podcasting with Robert Miller. Thursday, May the 5th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, May the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, May the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And to confirm, call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.